Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the saga of However the Visa Fjord on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And it, it took us four episodes to get through this saga because, well, well, it's good. And, and maybe we have an editing problem or something. I don't know. I mean, no one's really editing us. Is, is that what you mean by a problem? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the worst part is that it's not actually true. We, I, I edit stuff out. I do. Just think about the nonsense we leave in. Yeah. But uh, even with editing, we still managed to spend about seven hours talking about the story of Halvarth's revenge against the family of his son's killer. And now it's time to review it. Yeah, and I think uh, we both ended up pretty pleased with this one, not to spoil the end, but we like it. I think so. Yeah, not to spoil anything, but it's not perfect. It's not even close, but it's been a fun ride. Yeah. This is a saga that tends to get a pretty strong reaction from most scholars one way or another. Remember, this is the saga that we've seen criticized for, I'm going to quote here, inaccuracies in its history, kinships, personal relations, geography, and law. Just to name a few. Yeah. Dickerson (laughs) and Powell call it preposterous and monstrously improbable. <laughs> I love that one. That's great. Uh, and it was cited by no less than Sigurd and Ordal as the textbook example of the decline of the saga art in the later age. Now, see, that's really, really harsh. <laughs> now, on the other hand, it's also held up as an example of an artistic and literary achievement of the post-classical era, with Hapdor Guthmansson calling it a novelistic saga that consciously plays with appearance and reality and successfully parodies the conventions of earlier sagas. I mean, we have to say those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive views, mm-hmm. right? I mean, inaccuracies of history and law are one way of creating parody. Yeah, and, and fictionalizing the past, uh, deliberately fictionalizing, uh, that's an art of its own, uh, if, mm-hmm. if it's done well. Sure. And as Dorothy and Paul Durenberger point oh, out... Oh, the Durenbergers? Yes, the Durenbergers. And I'm going to make sure that I don't mention them again so that you don't get to do that bit anymore. <laughs> it's probably for the best. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine anyone enjoys it. Uh, uh, this is a saga that has a lot to say about the structure of Saga Age Iceland's social order and its imperfect political and legal systems. Yeah. So our job tonight, John, is to decide how well Halvarth Saga does what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we get to those final ratings... We've got some awards to give out and some people to outlaw and some thingmen to collect. I mean, we're all dressed up. Let's get to it. All right. Best Bloodshed. Now, in our Best Bloodshed category, we review the saga's most noteworthy scenes of violence and bloodshed. Now, the exact target of what we're looking for will shift from time to time. Sometimes it's truly bloody, as limbs are hacked off and throats are bitten out. Sometimes it's a little less bloody. But uh, whether it's Scarpathen's icy acrobatics, Reftisly's ingenious steampunk trap house, or Killer Skuta leaving a naked grim to be bitten to death by the midges of Mivotten, we're always looking for a standout moment that's hard to forget. I think we awarded Best Bloodshed to a manuscript lacuna once, isn't that right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that was, uh, I think it was a Valtenfeathinger saga. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. So, so if, a, if a gap in the manuscript can win Best Bloodshed, <laughs> I'd say the rules for what qualifies in a saga are pretty broadly defined. Well, to be fair, we don't typically choose things like a lacuna. There's almost always got to be a, at least a little blood spilt to earn this award. And while Halvarth Saga has plenty of bloodshed, the question here, John, is whether the saga can escape the accusation that it's too derivative 
and maybe offer us something interesting and memorable. Well, I mean, yeah, your implication there, it's uh, there's definitely plenty here that it blends in with what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that this saga is a good bit younger than its predecessors doesn't do it any favors in that regard. Uh, that's why we've chosen to disregard, for example, Outley biting out the throat of Thorgrim in that final battle. Yeah, yeah. We, we've seen a lot of throat biting since Ale Saga. Uh, and if you want to catch our attention, well, you, you just got to do better than that. That's right. Or at least do something with the scene that's surprising. I mean, the fact that it was Outley doing it is kind of surprising, but I guess that's that doesn't true. qualify. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Um, so that said, I think there are quite a few good candidates for us to consider in this saga. Um, based on our conversation before we started recording, I think we're on the same page about the best candidates yeah. for best bloodshed in this saga. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to start with, uh, Thormod's fight with Olaf. Mm-hmm. And now you, you might, you, know, you might say, Andy, isn't Thormod's fight with Olaf just a rehash of Beowulf and Grendel or Grettir and Glaum? <laughs> Or any I number of that. other Draugr fights in the sagas. And you know what I would say? I would say, sure it is. Now, one Draugr fight is much like the mm-hmm. next. Just like one action film or a drama or a comedy is actually rather formulaic and much like the next. But what makes this scene noteworthy, I think, is the quality of the writing. Especially in terms mm-hmm. of setting a mood. So, just to recap the situation, Olaf has agreed to deal with the troublesome Draugr of Thormaldr who comes home every night and returns to his bed, which makes his wife uncomfortable, (laughs) understandably. Now, Olaf rides out to Thorgeth's farm when he's invited to kind of deal with this problem, and when it's time for bed, he takes the bed that's closest to the door. The saga tells us that there was a light burning high in the hall, but down low, down near the beds, it was very dark. And see, right there, the author is using light to set the mood of the scene, Mm -hmm. and I like this. Now, Olaf, in typical Olaf fashion, lays down to bed in only his shirt and pants, though he does cover himself with a single pelt, much like Grettir does. Now, when the sun finally sets, Thormald's Draugr opens the door to this hall, and he finds Olaf in the bed by the door, and he recognizes that this bed is usually left empty. So frustrated by this unwelcome guest, Thormald reaches out and grabs the pelt from Olaf and tries to tear it away, which the narrator notes with some humor is not exactly a hospitable act. But Olaf holds tight to that pelt and they quickly tear it in two. And that's when the fight starts in earnest. Again, just like in Grettir's saga. Mm -hmm. But here's where things diverge between the two sagas. Rather than sliding in behind his opponent and wrestling with him, as Grettir does, Olaf reaches for an axe and Thormother, the Draugr, is the one who jumps onto the bench near the bed and... As Olaf swings this axe, it's Thormoth who slips under the blow and wraps his arms around Olaf's waist. Mm-hmm. Olaf does his best to counter, and the two men begin flinging each other around the hall, smashing everything they touch. And the saga notes, wherever Thormoth grabs hold of Olaf, he tears the flesh. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the light goes out, and the author notes that Olaf found this sudden darkness less than helpful. Again, note the author's effort to use the lighting of the scene to enhance the mood and build the tension. Now, soon the the two men are rolling out the door and into the night, and just by chance, but also keeping to the formula of the Draugr fight, Thormald catches his heels on a piece of driftwood in the field and falls backwards. Taking advantage of Thormald's vulnerable position, Olaf drives his knee into the Draugr's groin and then finishes him off. Very different from the dramatic end and conclusion to Gretis Saga's uh, <laughs> fight with uh, with Glaumer. Yeah. Now, with 
the Draugr dispatched, uh, Olaf returns to the hall. Uh, he's victorious, but he's badly wounded. He's He's been scarred physically with the, all the thrashing and the, the cutting of his skin. Everyone thanks him. He gains a lot of renown for the deed. And certainly, I think, some, some consideration, we have to admit, for Thingman when the time comes. And it's, it's, it's a great scene, John. It's very, very much the product of a storytelling formula. Sure, I'll admit that. But it is well executed by the teller here with the investment in the lighting, the tearing of the flesh, the knee to the groin. It's all good stuff. And I think had we done this saga before Greta's saga, this one would have had a chance of winning Best Bloodshed, I think. But maybe here, maybe not. Well, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there before we uh, actually recount the entire saga hmm. and uh, agree with you that I think it, this is a uh, it's a good candidate. It would be a much better candidate if if this were the first time we'd encountered this. But as you said, the age of this saga, the youth of this saga tells against it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what about you? What do you got? Things like that. Well, I got a few things. Uh, okay. So I'm going to start with uh, something that's a little bit more unusual. Uh, my first candidate is one of the more unpleasant and shocking moments of the saga. Uh, this is during Halvorth's second attempt to get compensation from Thorbjorn for the killing of Olaf. Mm. Uh, remember, uh, this is the time at the All Thing that Guest Odlusen gets involved and pronounces a triple compensation for Olaf's death. And he even offers to pay one of the Weirgilds himself. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, there's sort of two things going on there. A guest is trying to lead the way to a peaceful resolution, but he's also Thorbjorn's brother-in-law, mm-hmm. though he feels some obligation to help compensate Halvorth for his kinsman's crimes. He's taking responsibility. Right. I mean, we can think of that as sort of a stupid tax, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Arranging to marry your sister to an infamous bully in Scofflaw, maybe not a great plan. Yeah. Uh, so guest pays his stupid tax, and then Thorbjorn grudgingly scrapes up one additional Weregild, mm-hmm. but he claims he can't afford to pay the third one just now. Uh, when Guest presses him, Thorbjorn pulls out a blood-stained bag and says, If you insist, it is certain that Halvorth will not consider himself underpaid if this is included. And he smacks Halvorth across the face with the bloody bag of teeth he chopped out of Olaf's mouth. Oof. It's one of the most vicious things we've seen in any text we've covered. Yeah. At least I think it is. And it speaks to the hyperbolic levels of evil we see displayed by the villains in this saga. Mm -hmm. As we know from other stories, Andy, this move of hitting someone in the nose with a bag is a deliberate humiliation. And that's even without the added cruelty of flaunting the mutilation of Halvorth's son's body. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's... That's not just bloodshed. There's a lot packed in there. Absolutely. Emotionally and textually. Uh, I think it's a good candidate. Andy? Absolutely. What else have you got? Okay, well, here's an interesting one. Something that has definitely stuck in our brains, right? So, remember when Halvorth finally manages to get himself out of bed and he runs around collecting nephews to help him avenge Olaf? Of course. Well, One of the more entertaining parts of the Yeah, right. Well, something strange happens when he arrives to collect the Valbrinsons from their farm. Remember, they're out uh, raking hay, and we're told that they had left their shoes, these high boots that they wear, aside in the field. And when Halvorth says that he's come to collect the promised nets, the boys throw down their rakes and run to grab their clothes and their shoes. But when they try to put those shoes on, they find that the leather had shrunk or shriveled and hardened. And whether they realize this or not isn't said, but they're so eager to join their uncle that they step into the shoes so hard that the skin on their heels is stripped off. And when they come home, their boots are filled with blood. It's an odd moment. Yeah. It's a memorable moment. And blood mm-hmm. is shed. So there you go. 
pretty Fair good. Fair enough. I'd like to know what kind of uh, a haberdasher the uh, Valbrunsons have been going to. Yeah. That they've they've they're using raw leather that still shrinks and shrivels <laughs> yeah. when it's left alone for half an hour. But that's fine. Yeah, uh, I I agree. It's interesting. It's got you know folkloric uh, motif sort of uh, yeah. uh, overtones to it. It's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, this is um, this is actually a good time to address a question that we had for the rune sack, mm-hmm. but never really got to. Okay. It was from, it's about this, so that's why I bring it up here. It's from Stephen McGee, and he writes, I had a thought regarding Valbren's sons having trouble getting their boots back on when Halvorth comes to collect them. I vaguely recalled there being a trope about men swelling up with blood when they become enraged. Isn't this something that specifically comes with berserker rage? Is it possible that the Valbrensons have swollen up with rage at the prospect of the coming battle? But then... um, Stephen also acknowledges that the text does specifically reference the boots having shrunken, not the feet having grown. So mm-hmm. it's a weird moment. Uh, now, John, I know that you and I have talked about this uh, one actually quite a bit. Uh, now's your chance to share your final thought on what's going on here. What do you think? No, I don't think there's any, um, th- there's nothing more or less than what the text is telling us, right? This is a, for me, this is a very folkloric moment uh, where meant to understand that their determination to be a part of this and to outfit themselves for the upcoming, presumably, battle uh, is greater than their than any discomfort they might feel over their shoes. Mm-hmm. We've seen in other sagas that uh, men who have wounds to their feet or uh, 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 cysts or uh, blisters that burst in their shoes, they are determined to show no discomfort because it's unmanly to acknowledge discomfort, uh, especially when it comes to like your feet. Yeah. Right. Um, there's the, uh, is it, is it good luck saga or uh, possibly Halfred who says that uh, um, what he, he sees no reason to limp as long as both legs are the same length. Yeah. That's good. Luck. He's got a, yeah, a, a broken, a broken cyst in his foot. Um, I feel like there's an element of that here. These okay. are uh, two young men who are so eager for battle that they're willing to overlook personal discomfort uh, manifest in sort of pain okay. to their feet. Interesting. Uh, and so that's, for me, that's what it reads. So, so what I'm hearing from you is you believe that the shoes themselves have actually shrunk and they, they just, and, and they're shrunken and hard and they just disregard as they slide their feet in and the, the bottoms of their soles come off. Right. Although again, I think it's, I think the actual, the, Physics are irrelevant here. It's the it's the motif that matters. Understood. But yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I see it. Um. I, I I get that. I see it as more not a swelling of a kind of berserker rage, but I think one of the things that this saga is very interested in is the transformation of weaker men into stronger men. We have Halvorth as an old man. We have Otley as a as a weak and and cowardly man. Uh, they transform into manly men. Right. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, I think what we have are the Valbrunsons who are depicted initially as boys who are now men. And so they have mm-hmm. grown in size. I think this doesn't actually happen, but it's the saga's way of playing with this idea of they they have transitioned into manhood. They are ready for battle. Therefore, they are no longer the right size for these boys boots that they started the mm-hmm. day with. So. If I'm understanding you correctly, Andy, uh, you're saying that uh, what happened then, well, in Isafur, they say that the Valbrunson's shoe, the feet grew three sizes that day. That's correct. Yes. As they became yeah. man, as they became uh-huh. men, they they swelled up with uh, 
masculinity, <laughs> vim, and right. vigor. That's 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 how you know a boy has become a man when his feet get bigger. Well, I can tell you, my son's feet have gotten much bigger lately, but he hasn't there been asked go. to kill anyone yet. You know, but it, the time is coming. Oh my! But but yeah, I that, that sounded vaguely threatening. I, I absolutely agree with you. Just to put a cap on this, I absolutely agree with you that the motif itself is more important than the literal meaning of what's happening. I don't think mm. that their the bottoms of their soles of their feet actually come off. What we're in, I think, what we're both <laughs> indicating is that there's a trans transition going on here, and that's what mm-hmm. the saga is drawing our attention to. All right, there you go, Stephen. You got uh, you got uh, squeezed into the middle of uh, of the judgment section. Now, if I can, if I can follow in your bloody footsteps, Andy, oh. uh, I've got another candidate as well. Uh, and actually, there's no blood spilled at all in this one. Oh, uh, well, that doesn't sound so I great. Think, well, I think that's exactly why it's so satisfying. Allow me to make my case. Okay. This is the death of Vak. Ooh. The irritating nephew and one-man shriek chorus of Isafjord. Your favorite Viking lickspittle. Yeah, so uh, Halberth and his nephew brigade are lying in wait to ambush Thorbjorn's company of men in his well-appointed grotto. Uh, They're expecting a tough battle because the sides are roughly equal in size, and Thorbjorn has multiple experienced warriors with him. So they watch from a hiding spot by the boathouse as Thorbjorn's ship is pulled up on shore, and just as they're preparing themselves for a desperate struggle, they hear Thorbjorn order Vok to collect everyone's weapons and armor and stow them in the boathouse. Halvorth and his nephews watch in disbelief as Vok collects a pile of weapons, essentially disarming Thorbjorn's entire crew, (laughs) and then walks up next to where they're hiding to stash the weapons away in the building. They cannot believe their good luck on this one. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, and it's not just the weapons. Vok makes multiple trips, taking the armor and the helmets off of Thorbjorn's men as well. Yup, um... And when he returns with the stack of helmets, Halvorth just can't resist anymore. Uh, he and his men leap out and try to grab Vok, but he dodges, turns to run, and then trips and falls headfirst into a shallow pool next to the path. And since he's still wearing a helmet and carrying several more, the weight of them traps his head underwater. <laughs> and this is just a gift to Halvorth and company, since they were planning on killing him anyway. Yeah. So no one makes a move to help him. Instead, they all just stand there and watch as Vok dies horribly in one of the greatest own goals of saga literature. It's a deeply satisfying death. Uh, But as you said, there's no actual blood being shed. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure there's violence per se. Vok just drowns his own self in a shallow pool. Well, it's still a death. And honestly, the problem here is we don't have a separate category for best karma comeuppance. (laughs) All right, yeah. Is that it for that entry? I love that one, by the way. Uh, It is. Uh, Although I do have a second entry from that same ambush. Okay. Uh, It sort of follows on the Vox story. Uh, Thorbjorn and Gothi's men have turned in their weapons and armor, so they're strolling up to the farmhouse in their shirt sleeves when they realize that they're under attack. Uh, Most of the group has to grab improvised weapons, and Thorbjorn's servant, Bran the Strong, comes up with a doozy. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, We learned earlier in the story that Thorbjorn has made a boat ramp by embedding whale ribs in the ground leading to the water. Yeah, it it turns out that that's absolutely a real thing. And uh, Mm -hmm. like we we said in the uh, one of uh, episode three or two or somewhere around there, uh, a couple of listeners even sent us old photographs of whale rib ship rollers. Very cool stuff. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, well, it turns out that those ribs are handy to have around for another reason. Uh, just as the attackers reach him, Brand rips a rib out of the ground and drives it right through the head of Alm, the foster father of Hutgrim Osbrinson. Ouch. That's That's gotta be a contender. Yeah. This isn't bludgeoning. He literally impales Alm through the face. Oof. Andy, I don't know what sort of standards you're working from these days, but I'm pretty impressed by that. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Anytime you got an example of people having to get resourceful in battle, the result is going to be worth talking about. And in this case, the whale rib rollers were interesting all by themselves. And then one mm-hmm. man spears another through the skull with one of them. I, I love it. It's it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we've seen other battles on and around whale carcasses. Yeah. But I can't call to mind another example of death by whale rib. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm probably forgetting one. Well, it says a lot about the sagas that I'm not entirely sure whether you're right or wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what I'm reading up on tonight. Yeah. Uh, Andy, what else you got? Well, okay. So my last candidate shouldn't take long, but it's it's interesting. Okay. Uh, this one is really impressive, not so much for the bloodshed, though there is bloodshed, uh, but it, I love it for the insanity of it, the surprise of it. It's something <laughs> unexpected. Yolt the Dueler has just robbed the father of Grimm and Thorstein Thorbjornsson. He's made him pay an outrageous price for a pasture that he partially owns already. And rather than Mm -hmm. take this abuse, the brothers, led by Thorstein, decide to do something about it. And again, remember, they're only tweens. They're 12 and 13, something like that. Just my son's age, who has big feet and is ready to kill. Hmm... I wonder if I have any enemies out there. <laughs> now, armed with... I'm sure we could find a few. Armed with only a hand axe, Thorstein attacks Ljolt as he's walking by. Now, the blow doesn't bite, and Ljolt turns on Thorstein with his axe raised, ready to repay the insult. And that's when Grimm steps up. He rushes forward, he swings his own axe, and he lands a perfect blow on Ljolt's wrist. And so the axe, along with Ljolt's hand, falls to the ground. And at that point, it's easy pickings. The boys have no trouble... Killing Lyot. Mm-hmm. These these brothers are a dynamic and deadly duo. And I'm thoroughly impressed I mean, and disturbed by both of them. They're unexpected. I'll say that for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they really turn... Uh, once again, if you're thinking about this saga in terms of like what's interesting and surprising about it, it, it finds these motifs that we're definitely familiar with. Mm-hmm. The two boys in in this scenario, in any other saga, they get killed by this guy. Right. But here, they cut his hand off and stab him to death on the ground yep. as he screams and cries. I particularly like the, the moment of silence as all three of them turn and look at the axe with the hands still <laughs> gripping it on the yes. ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great. It's it's really great. Uh, do you have any more? You have one more, right? I have one last one. It. And it's, uh, honestly, it's the probably the one that people have been expecting. Uh, toward the end of this saga, Thorarin Thrudrickson learns the location of the men who killed his terrible brothers. Uh, he sends 18 men to kill them, led by a sorcerer. It doesn't go according to plan, though. No. Uh, and the attack ends in an absolute grand guignol as 15 of the 18 men are killed. One of them is killed after the battle's officially over. Uh, he's actually killed by the the twelve year old enthusiast uh, Thorstein Thorbjarnarson, who I just was talking about. That's right. Uh, and the last three men uh, are only too happy to surrender and be spared the fury of a moody tween's axe. Yeah. But 
Atli of Otradal, the leader of the defenders, isn't ready to let go of his resentment over the attack. He has the three men's heads shaved, smears tar all over them, and then cuts off their ears before sending them back to Thorarin. Yeah. When they arrive at the Allthing, their mutilated and tar-smeared bodies tell the story of their defeat clearly to everyone, providing one more embarrassment for Thorarin in front of the gathered chieftains of Iceland. That's great. So, I mean, you know, we talked a great deal about that one, so I don't think we need to go into details. Right. Uh, those are our candidates. What are we thinking about for the prize? Well, uh, for me, the most memorable, the thing that that gave me a great chuckle and I enjoyed the most is Vok drowning in a, in a shallow <laughs> pool. Yep. Um, the the others are all fantastic. I, I originally thought we'd be giving uh, this prize to Thorbjorn for smashing uh, Halvorth in the face with the, the teeth of his dead son. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's really a good one, too. But the the shock and surprise of Vok stumbling with his head. <laughs> he's got his head in the helmet and he falls into that pool and he can't yeah. get up. And everyone just stands around watching. I mean that's that's great stuff. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I, for me, it's a uh, uh, it's between uh, Vox drowning in a deep puddle and um, the death of Aun by getting a whale rib through yeah. his skull. Yeah, that is good, um, which is just also kind of a spectacular moment. For me, uh, I think I'm going to have to make the tiebreaker here. Which which one is a better fit for this saga? Hmm. That death by whale rib, uh, although it's over the top, uh, would fit in a bunch of other sagas. Yeah. I can't think of another saga in which a man dying by drowning in a six-inch deep puddle would make sense. Right. Uh, it, it speaks to what this saga is and the way in which it sort of has its tongue in its cheek when it comes to conventions of sagas. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that I agree. I think we're going to give it to that one. I'm I'm really happy with that one. Um, again, lots of great moments of bloodshed. That's why this uh, section has gone on for for a, a yeah, quite a while. No, it's definitely the strength of this saga is the bloodshed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, congratulations to Vok. Uh, the only recognition you're going to get is <laughs> absolutely right. Your bumbling death. So congrats. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> way to go. Body, Body count. count. All right, this is supposed to be our simplest category. All we have to do is count up the people who die from unnatural or violent causes in the saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Simple task. Simple task. It's supposed to be simple, but we usually find some way to make things complicated. Yeah. So, what do you say, Andy? You did the calculation this time. Did we <laughs> keep it simple for once? Yeah, well, you know, this saga should have uh, been very straightforward. I already know the answer. <laughs> well, because we already talked about it. Yeah, but the, the well, you know, was kind of a and, giveaway. And we, we exchanged some emails about this. Uh, Quite a few emails about this. But it should have been pretty easy, especially <laughs> really since... really should have been. Guest Oldleifson gives a pretty thorough accounting of the major deaths in the saga at the end yep. there. but And that's a really weird thing, that at the end we get a, like, yep. a recount. But uh, it wasn't that easy, mainly because John and I kept getting hung up on how many people actually got killed in Halvarth's attack right. on Thorbjorn's farm. That was the, mm-hmm. the spot where things got messed up. Now, right. Halvarth reports in his poem that they killed a quartet, but he doesn't explain mm-hmm. who. 
And it would be nice to trust the poem and take the body count from that attack as four, but then that would miss a few important deaths not counted in the poem. So uh, we went over the scene a few times, and this is what we came up with. Uh, Vok slips and drowns in hilarious fashion. Congratulations on your recent award. Uh, Congratulations. That's one death. Then uh, Bron the Strong uses one of those whale rib rollers to smash in the head of Aun, Halgrim's uh, foster father. That's two. Honorable mention, by the way, if Vok is unable to uh, fulfill the obligations of being the best bloodshed winner. Are there obligations? Uh, Brand will absolutely <laughs> be the uh, the recipient. Yes, sure. Whatever you say. Uh, Halgrim uh, quickly avenges his foster father by dispatching Bran the Strong. So that's three. Mm-hmm. And then Halvarth gets his revenge and he kills Thorbjorn. That's four. And then right. we're given a report by Torvi that Sturtla and the two farmhands were also killed, and that's seven. So if we're looking at Halvarth's mention of a quartet in this poem, well, we might be missing one of those four. Uh, I think we can count Thorbjorn, uh, Sturtla, and Bron the Strong, probably mm-hmm. very much included in Halvarth's count. Now, you have to go back to the list of named characters in Thorbjorn's boat as they arrive if you want to figure out who the other one was. It says Sturtla was there, uh, Theodric, mm-hmm. his son, uh, Thorbjorn and Vok, uh, Bron the Strong, two farmhands and two slaves. Now, we know the slaves were left alone. Right. So you, slept, you slipped a fifth named person in there. I did. And is there a problem? No, I think I think you're uh, you're about to reveal the answer. Yeah. Now we we know the slaves are left alone, so the last of the quartet has to be either Vok or Theodric Sertlison. Now, of the two, we only see Vok die, and the question is whether or not Halbarth is counting Vok. He might be, given that Vok played a significant role in stoking the flames of discord between Thorbjorn and Olaf, but he might not be. Well, especially because, because they didn't, didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah, they don't actually kill Vok themselves. He slipped and drowned himself in that shallow pool. And they just watched it happen, no mm-hmm. doubt with satisfying smirks on their faces. Yes. So if not Vok, then who is the fourth of the quartet killed by Havart's revenge party? Uh, John, you just mentioned there's another name in that list. Right. And uh, it's got to be Theodric, the son Theodric of Sertla. Yeah. But yep. how can you count Theodric if we don't see him die? One might ask. If he's not referenced, I mean, it's very in the straightforward. Scene. <laughs> I think it, I know. I think it's a good question. Oh, because, I see. You're trying to build up suspense. I see. Uh, yes. Yes. I'm sorry. How do we do? Do we do that, Andy? Well, see, by the rules of this of of saga thing, you can't count it if it's not referenced mm-hmm. or you don't see it, right? Right. And there's no reference to Theodric being killed in that. Not then. Sequence. But right, the answer is in Guest Oldleifson's summary of the important killings at the end of the saga, where he does, in fact, include Theodric Sturluson, who he says was killed, though innocent of any crime, in this mm. moment. So whoever Theodric went up against, it didn't go well for him, and that is the seventh <laughs> death in that sequence. Right. Now, everything else in the saga is pretty straightforward, bringing the total number of untimely deaths in this saga to 28. That's mm-hmm. pretty much middle of the pack for the sagas that we've covered, placing it in the range of Halfred, the Troublesome Poet, Henthorir Saga, and the Gunnar, the Fool of Keldegunnar. Yep. But, uh, John, of the real question on everyone's mind is where <laughs> Halvarth's saga stacks up in the body count density measurement 
our BCDM. And with a body count of 28 over a Hoffenkettle measurement of 1.74, mm-hmm. we get a very ho-hum score of 16.09. Is that really that ho-hum? Where does that rank it? Uh, it's on the low end of the middle for mm. the sagas that we've covered. It's, in fact, in 22nd place okay. of the 30-some 30 sagas that yep. we've done. 32? 32. Yep. 32. Yep. So it's it's 10th from last. That's, that's going to be a disappointing finish. I'm sure Halworth had bigger things in mind when he went on his spree. I don't know. He just he just wanted a nap is all Halworth wanted. <laughs> and then someone had to kill his son. That poor old man. Yeah. It's 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 just behind Cormac's saga and just ahead of Volpenfeldinger's saga. Mm-hmm. So how about that, John? There you go. Great. Nicknames. It's it's time once again for us all to sit back and enjoy one of the more fascinating and informative bits we do here at Saga Thing. It's time for nicknames. When our dear yeah. Dr. John Sexton shows us what a good scholar he is as he plums the depths of the Icelandic saga's predilection for playful nicknames. Now, sometimes he comes up with some shiny new insights. Sometimes he offers up some fool's gold. But one thing is certain. If it's time for Saga Thing's judgments, then you can count on John to have done his homework and to be ready with something brilliant. So, John, what do you have to tell us of the likes of Halvarthin Halti, or Ljot the Dueler, or Atli the Short slash Atli the Coward? Bring it. Yeah, I got nothing. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the problem is that this is an unusual saga when it comes uh-huh. to nicknames. Uh, usually I begin by talking about the familiar descriptive nicknames that lack substantial interest. And the ones you just mentioned would be on that list. Uh-huh. Right? The strong, the short, the old. Uh, in this saga, those are almost the only nicknames mentioned <laughs> in the entire narrative. Almost a lack of creativity there. Yeah. Now, a few people get place names. Uh, Stainthor of Eri, uh, Atli of Otradal, uh, Jot of Manoberg. And others are called names that never rise to the level of a cognomen, like... Old Halverth and Olaf the Fool. If we remove those, which I think we have to, the only nicknames that remain are those of Bran the Strong, Outley the Short, Yolt the Dueler, and if we're willing to stretch a point, Olaf is called Bear Warm at one point. I, I think this is a symptom of the lateness of this saga. Interesting. Uh, This isn't the time to go into a whole thesis on this, but it's worth noting as a partial explanation for the lack of names in this saga. Generally, and I want to be clear, I have not fully thought this through, I have not done all the research, but generally, the inventiveness of saga nicknaming seems to go hand in hand with the degree to which the saga conceives of itself as recording past events. Hmm. At a textual level, nicknames add precision, marking out one Thorsten or Helgi from another. A saga that thinks in literary terms about its subjects might employ nicknames for verisimilitude, or it might not, but that desire to preserve a record of past figures isn't the same. Now, we can also think about the broader trends in naming in Europe. By the 11th, 12th centuries, the use of surnames is spreading across Europe. By the late Middle Ages, surnames are the rule, nicknames the exception. Increasingly, The records differentiate one Richard from another by a name that could be passed from one generation to the next. If I'm writing about Richard Wainwright, Richard Green, and Richard Thompson, I don't need to know which one's tallest and which one limps to differentiate them. It'd be helpful, though. Well, sure. 
the one case where confusion might reasonably result from names in this story is the two Theodricsons who are both named Yot. And sure enough, we get a nickname, a way to distinguish between them. One of them is Yot the Dueler. Uh, the, the limited name pool in Iceland means that nicknames were indispensable, and of course the use of patronymics meant that uh, naming was a different convention system than it was in the rest of Europe. Uh, but obviously, as we've talked about when we talk about this saga, it's very interested in continental literature. It's very aware of the conventions of that literature. Uh, and if we're willing to commit to a reading of this saga as a self-aware secondary saga, we can certainly ignore the need to identify historical figures with precision. This saga actually even drops nicknames that are present in other sources. Interesting. In Landala book, for example, in the Settlements book, uh, in the brief entry for this set of people, we're told, Avon Nee went out from Ogthir to Iceland together with Thurid Rundgilta, his wife. They took for themselves Altafjord and Seydisfjord and lived there. Their sons were Thorleif, who was mentioned before, and Valbrand, the father of Haltgrim and Gunnar and Bjargi, whom Halvarth the Lame had for a wife, and whose son was Olaf. So, according to Lanama book, Halvarth does have a nickname. He is Halvarth the Lame. But it's never introduced into this saga, so it's not canon for our purposes. Partly, probably because they can't have him... Well, it would have been helpful, maybe, to have him be lame, but mm -hmm. he's just old. And so right. that's well, and again, that's he is called old Halvorth at one point, but doesn't yeah. really become a nickname. Oh, I know there's been. Uh, sorry, I have to do a bit of a digression here. Um, I know there's been some conversation on our Discord about that nickname, uh, Thurid Rungilta, uh, which uh, Stefan Bjornsson uh, fantastically translated as Miss Piggy. <laughs> uh, now, normally we wouldn't dive into a nickname that isn't in the saga, but I didn't have much else to talk about, so what the hell. Miss Piggy isn't actually that big of a stretch. Uh, Finner Johnson translated this as bedsow, and the Icelandic English Dictionary of Cleesby Vigvason renders it as sleeping sow. Uh, Zwega gives us something like broad young sow, which is getting pretty close to Miss Piggy. Uh, Paul Peterson links uh, rum to rimmer, uh, roaring, and suggests something like roaring sow. Uh, Eric Lind pushed for reading Rum as being a reference to Rome or to pilgrimage, and that's probably not realistic, but it would mean we could translate this as Pilgrim Piggy, which makes me very happy. Uh, I I do lean toward Bedsow as a translation, and if I'm reaching, I'd suggest that it's got something to do with maybe a lying in after a birth. Uh, but I'm also willing to concede Miss Piggy as conjecture. Oh, let's go uh, Miss Piggy. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think we can go with Miss Piggy. Uh, anyway, the upshot is that we haven't got much to work with in the saga. In its sources, yes, but not in the saga. I think we have to give the award with an asterisk to Yolt the Dueler, unless we're willing to accept Olaf Bearwarmth as a nickname, which I'm not. I could be convinced of. No. Andy? He No. I, I don't like okay. Yolt the Dueler. Other sources do count it as a nickname. What sources counted as example, a nickname? Does, Paul Peterson counts it as a nickname. Well, he's wrong. among the nicknames Paul, as Olaf Fairwarmth. You're wrong, Paul. It's not a nickname. Wow. That's harsh. It's a descriptor right. of a feature uh, All right. in the saga. It's No one calls him that. Okay. So, I'm sorry, we, Paul. So I love you very much. Are we going to give much. it to Yalt the Dueler? 
What about Otley the Coward? Maybe. The Short? He's never called the Coward as a he, nickname. Isn't he? No, he's that coward. Oh, that's right. He's called that coward. Yeah. <sighs> he's only Otley the Short as a nickname. And he calls himself that, by the way. I'm not sure we can count him calling himself by a nickname. Uh, incidentally, um, I believe that Lot's brother is called, uh, Howarth refers to him as Lot the Warrior. Yeah. Could we consider him just so that, you know, we're introducing something different? I honestly don't think that's a nickname. but Oh, you, but you're you going for to, bear warmth somehow. Oh, only because I have an external source that the classes it as a nickname. But it's also stretching, so let's It is it. absolutely. <laughs> I never said it wasn't. All right. Uh, here, here's what I want to do. Yeah. Yolt the Dueler can have the award, mm-hmm. but I think that we should drop. He does the, not deserve it. I think we should drop the award on the ground and mm-hmm. step on it a couple times. Make sure it's dinged up pretty good, and then give it to uh-huh. him. How's that? Do we actually draw the asterisk on the award, or is it just in the record book? No, no, we draw it. Yeah, we draw it on the award. That's a great idea. Great, great. Okay. Excellent. Well, Yolt the Dueler, enjoy your scare quotes award. Yeah. Pathetic. Notable Notable witticisms. All right, this is more like it. This is the category where we pay homage to the storyteller's art. The witty asides, the clever remarks, the moments of narrative brilliance that comprise the saga maker's art. And this saga may be a slouch when it comes to nicknames, but it's a pretty well-constructed piece, and it's got some good setups and good lines of repartee. So what do we got, Andy? Well... My first candidate, and maybe my favorite. Actually, it's my favorite. Ooh, I'm not going to lie. I'm, so we're just putting our thumb on the scales right away. I'm open and strong. Uh, this is a clever bit of cruelty from Thorbjorn as he offers a settlement to Halvarth and at the same time makes a mockery of his age and helplessness. Mm-hmm. It comes from Chapter 5, when Halvarth first rides over to Thorbjorn's farm uh, and asks for compensation for the killing of Olaf. And Thorbjorn, in front of all of his goons, says, It is well known. I don't remember the the voice, but uh, it's something (laughs) like this. It is well known that I have killed many a man. And although people have often said that I acted without cause, I've never paid compensation for any of them. But because you had a courageous son and your loss is so great, well, I think it advisable to give you something. Though it be but a pittance. For the record, this voice there, you're doing is absolutely Matthew McConaughey doing a Clint Eastwood impression. Mm, Go on. Interesting. That's not what I'm going for, but okay. <laughs> There's a horse whom the hands call Old Nag just outside the Hayfield Wall. He's gray and very old and broken down. Now, up to now, he hasn't been able to get up off the ground. Since he's been feeding on the chaff for a few days, I I think he might be on the mend. Go ahead and take that horse home, Halvarth, if you like. You can keep him. Now, John, I I believe I said at the time, this is great. Yeah. (laughs) It is Thorbjorn's witty villain moment, and I I can't help but see Mm -hmm. Thorbjorn as Curly Bill from Tombstone or L.G. Murphy in Young Guns. And... I may hate Thorbjorn, and he deserves to be hated, but I can appreciate the cleverness of this well-aimed barb, and it's mm-hmm. it's good. 
That's funny. Now that you said that, I now understand that Jack Palance sounds like Matthew McConaughey doing a Clint Eastwood impression. <laughs> yeah, I think I think originally when I was huh. doing the voice, I was I was going for Murphy and Young Guns esque yeah, kind of yeah. thing. That's you know? uh, that's a very strange realization. The um, whole uh, you could, you should be buy, women something about buying no, women's garments. I can't yeah, remember the line, but it. but that uh, kind of thing. Yeah. But with the charm of and and cockiness of of Curly Bill from Tombstone, <laughs> so I want to kind of blend the two together. Isn't that Powers Booth? It is Powers Booth that's, in that's his great, finest role. That's a great movie. Um, Outside of frailty, he's also good in frailty. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, I think that's a great that's a great example. Um, as you know, there's nothing like an insult that is an extended metaphor. Right, right, where it's the other person has to one. sit there and listen to you while you finish this extended metaphor <laughs> right, about yes. what it, how they suck, it's and then just, poor Howarth has to slink out as everyone's laughing in his face. <laughs> I mean, good stuff, good writing. In, in fairness, he does storm out. That's a uh, let's give him his due. Yeah. So, what, what do you got? Uh, What's your first one? All right. Well, I've got one here for Guest Aldifson. Oh, uh, and this Alderson. is actually speaking of people who have to sit and listen to themselves be insulted. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily the laugh out loud kind of humor we sometimes look for, but for sheer vicious wit, I have to give some credit to Guest for throwing some pretty impressive shade at his brother-in-law. Shade. So this is after Thorbjorn humiliates Halvorth by dismissing his request for compensation over his son's slaying. Halvorth starts to storm out of the booth, but Guest arrives and insists on arbitrating a settlement on the spot. And once he has everyone's attention... He begins his announcement by saying, In this case, Thorbjorn, I cannot award the proper amount because you have not got that much. <laughs> it's it's a it's a gr- it's a very public expression of guests' frustration with being stuck with someone like Thorbjorn as a brother-in-law. Yeah. But even more than that, it's a clear statement in front of the assembled crowd that Thorbjorn isn't the high roller he pretends to be. Yes, yeah. This is the same settlement that we talked about in the bloodshed, the yep. one that Thorbjorn derails by throwing Olaf's broken teeth in Halvard's face. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he'd have done that anyway at some point. That's why he kind of collected those teeth. Um, but that's obviously the reason he originally hacked them out of Olaf's mouth, I think. Yeah. Uh, and Thorbjorn's generally a vile and petty person, so well, yeah. Yeah, but remember, he was under warning from Guest that if he pulled any nonsense... Guest would annul the marriage between his sister and Thorbjorn. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, Thor, Thorbjorn, Thorbjorn might have had more cause to be uh, to show a little more restraint at this moment if yeah. Guest hadn't just ridiculed him in public. But I wonder if maybe that's Guest's kind of strategy there. Yeah. Like if I push Goad this guy him into far action, off, yeah, maybe I can get out of this stupid marriage because <laughs> right. this guy's a tool. <laughs> right, this guy sucks. I want out. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So that that's Guest's entry. Uh, what else you got? Okay. All right, uh, let's talk about Halvarth, all right? Let's yeah. talk about his uh, tendency to sleep through the years after Olaf's killing. <laughs> He's taking so long to do anything about Thorbjorn that his wife, Bjargi, has to step up and take matters into her own hands. She runs around, she finds out Thorbjorn's movements, she drops a curse on him, and she even gathers up a band of nephews to help Halvarth avenge their son. And when she's got all this arranged, she approaches Halvarth in bed to tell him of all the things that she's just accomplished. Mm-hmm. She approaches him and asks quietly, and I think somewhat ironically, and again, good writing on the part of the author of this. She asks Halvarth if he's asleep. <laughs> and he, he rolls over and responds with a lovely poem in which he claims that 
No sleep has settled on my brow since that man killed our son. And Bjarki just rolls her eyes and says, One thing's certain. It's a big lie that you've not slept in three years, I'll tell you. But now's the <laughs> time the to get up and voice? gird your loins if you wish to avenge your son, Olaf. <laughs> Good stuff, Bjarki. Good oh stuff. Oh, my God. It's great. I really like that one. Um, yeah. Just at a moment when the saga is really, like, going all in on the drama, right? On that, yeah. on the moment of pathos of an old oh, yeah. man broken by the death of his son and his inability to get compensation. For his wife to just lean in and say, you know, I heard you snoring just before. <laughs> so, like, think about this in Ale Saga, right? Ale has lost his son and mm-hmm. he's depressed. So we yep. have a parallel there, right? Yep. And Ale spouts off this poetry that's poignant and, and it speaks to his loss, mm-hmm. right? And his daughter takes him seriously, as she yep. should, yep. because that's what that saga asks for. But in this saga, Halvor yep. <laughs> rolls over to do the same kind of thing and Bjargi's like, not this time, son. I know you've been sleeping. <laughs> what you been doing with yourself for the last three years? I, I love it. you sandwiches for three years. <laughs> That's right. I've been feeding you soup in bed, you son of a bitch. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, good. I love it. Bjargi, excellent. Excellent. But let's give Howarth some credit because he does get a little witty. After killing Thorbjorn and Sturlof Thjodrikson, he brings his band of bloodthirsty nephews over to attack Ljot the warrior, or Ljot, who you said can't be called the warrior, but whatever, he calls well, him Ljot you know. the warrior. And he approaches Ljot's bedchamber and knocks with the flat of his sword, and Ljot wakes up and asks who's there. And when he finds out it's Halvarth, he says something like, What are you doing here, old man? I heard you met your death yesterday. And Halvarth replies, you will sooner hear of another's death, Ljot, for I am here to tell you of the killing of your brothers, Thorbjorn and Sturtla. It's a shame they don't th- have mics in the in the eleventh century because he can't yeah. drop one. Yeah, uh, and uh, and that's when things really pop off. But yeah. uh, it, it, and the the other death he might be reporting is the death of 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 Ljot the warrior because he about to die. <laughs> Uh, but it's nice It's nice to see Halvor stepping up and finally contributing to things like the body count, the bloodshed, the witticism categories. So well done, Halvorth. Yeah. Well done. I, I, I kind of feel like Halvorth is going to be always a bridesmaid, never a bride in his own saga uh, when it comes to these awards. But we'll see. Could be. Let's, you know, we got to get to Thingman and all see right, what happens. Right. Uh, so uh, my next candidate comes from the... Say, that same all thing where a guest tried to arbitrate a settlement between Thorbjorn and Halvorth over Olaf's death. Okay. Halvorth spent most of his time in the booth of Stainthor of Eri. Now, Stainthor is a little nonplussed by this old man who hangs around his booth and sulks in bed most of the time. <laughs> uh, but as he comes to know Halvorth and his story, he becomes sympathetic. Before yeah. the all thing breaks up, he tells Halvorth, I hope you all come to me if you ever need a little help. Yeah, it's an early sign that Stainthor's a good chieftain. Mm-hmm. He's the first Gothi in the saga to demonstrate an interest in doing his job, supporting just right. causes for their own sake. Well, he's definitely the only chieftain willing to defend the weak against the strong as well. Yeah. 
so fast forward a year, and Halvorth has at long last gone on his revenge spree, killing three of the Theodricsons and several members of their household in a single night. And once the red mist fades from Halvorth's eyes, he thinks of the consequences of his actions. And so he and his nephews ride to Stainthor's farm, where Halvorth reminds Stainthor that he'd offered to lend a hand if Halvorth ever needed a little help. And Stainthor replies, I can't imagine when you'll need a lot of help if now you need only a little. <laughs> it's great. This song stuff. is genuinely funny. Yeah, no, it actually is. Like, there's a lot of good lines throughout this thing. It's going to be hard to choose for yep. uh, notable witticisms. Yeah. No, it's. I think, you know, each of the major characters really kind of gets their moment, right, to yeah. to show off a little bit, to kind of have their their uh, their chance to turn a phrase, uh, their chance to show off who they are and what they're about. Yeah, yeah. And what definitely. I like about it is that each of these gags does speak to who that person is. Yeah. Right? They aren't just throwaway gags that could come from anybody in the saga. They make sense for each of these people. Mm-hmm. And they're earned because they're they're built over the yes. course of several chapters usually. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Speaking of funny, can I add one more? Sure. All right. So I just want to include Grimm's comment after his father, Thorbjorn, freaks out about their killing of Ljolt the Dueler. <laughs> I was wondering no. what you had in mind. <laughs> Remember that Grimm and his brother Thorstein attacked Ljolt the Dueler. They cut his hand off. Then they stab him to death. Yep. Um and when they tell their father, Thorbjorn, he shrieks and says something like, This is most unfortunate. You've killed a very great chieftain and our leader. I'll be deprived of my own land and all that I own now. And you too will be killed, which will serve you right. <laughs> Not exactly the words of a proud father. No. Or a brave man. And Grimm, his son, takes notice. Mm-hmm. He turns to his brother, Thorstein, and says, Let's not pay attention to this shameful creature who acts so <laughs> tediously. It's no ordinary coward who carries on so. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's pretty harsh, but well-deserved and hilarious phrasing. I, I love well, this line. And it's also, I mean, you know, there's nothing like being called out by your 10-year-old son. Well, he's not, you're, you're, you know, he's not 10, but yes. He is 10. Wait, oh, it's, it's 10 and 12, not 12 yeah. and 13? No, it's 10 and 12. Grim is 10 years old. That's even funnier. He but, acts so tediously, <laughs> and he's no ordinary coward, and he is a shameful creature. Those I'm, turns of phrase are I'm are bored excellent. with you, Father. I'm bored with you. <laughs> so, uh, John... Those are our candidates. <laughs> They're all good. Oh, my God. Where do we like, even really turn good. this one? What do we do? Oh, man. Um, all right. I've got three that I'd be three? happy with. Yeah. I mean, you had three candidates or two no, candidates or whatever. Right. No, there are there are, out of the six that we've named, I've got three that I'd be very happy to see. That's with. half of them. Okay. I but know. What, are, what do you got? Uh, how many do you have? All of them. There, well, there you go. <laughs> it's not very helpful at all. I'd uh, like to give them all an award. Uh, I, much as I enjoy uh, all of them, I'm going to say that uh, it's a big lie you haven't slept in three years is just such a such a great little snarl at her husband yeah. who, remember, Bjargi has been running the farm for three years while, uh, while her husband's been in bed, right? She hasn't complained that entire time. 
And at the end of this, for him to claim that he has laid sleepless for three years out of grief yes. while she's been doing all the work of running the farm. I, I think there's a, there's a very satisfying moment there for her where she gets to kind yeah. of call him on it. Uh, so I'll give I'll give her, her one there. Um, guest Odlifson's uh, shot at his brother-in-law. I cannot mm-hmm. award the proper amount because you haven't got that much. Yeah. Is, that's, In front that, of everyone. There's, there's so many layers to that one. Yeah. Uh, that I really appreciate. And then um, I think, you know, if I can't imagine we'll need a lot of help if you only need a little now is is a, a good line. It's just a solid line. That Yeah, that's really solid. Uh, so, so I don't yeah, know. I'd be happy with any three, of those. John, I I was going to I was going to try to whittle it down to two for you to choose from mm-hmm. from those three. But I don't know if I can. I like them so much. I mean, look. You know, we've we've given out joint awards before, and I'm willing to give out a joint award to two, but not three. We've got to okay. we got to whittle this down. Oh man. Okay. Stainthor's line is genuinely funny. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what a lot of help is going to look like if this is what you mean by a little. <laughs> Perfect. That is yep. notable witticisms to a T. Yep. But Biargi and her. You've literally been sleeping for the last three years. <laughs> you lazy son of. <laughs> I mean, that's so good too. Both of them are hilarious. They're pointed. Um, they're surprising in the moment. So, if I have to whittle it down to two, those are my two. All right. If you want to choose one of those, I'll go with whatever you choose. No, I, I, I think I'm going to go with both of those. Um, I. Yeah, I think I'm happy splitting this award. Uh, we've okay. we split it before, and I think this is a moment when you know, as we said with Beth Bloodshed, this saga excels in some areas and really doesn't have much to offer in others. And this is one of the areas where it really excels. It really does. And I'm which I'm fine I mean, they're kind of our that. two biggest categories typically. And Often, for the yeah. saga to excel in both of our two biggest yep. categories, yeah, that's pretty remarkable. I'll admit that I'm a little bit frustrated with the saga for the what it did to me in nicknames, but well, <laughs> I, yeah. I appreciate its witticisms. All right, so Stainthor and Bjargi. Come on up, you can share this award. That's right. Oh, glory. Now, this segment should be relatively short by my calculations. We've said that before. Oh, it's always like a, it's a rhetorical device, really, more than anything. I see. But, well done. But in in this case, I think it's actually true. Okay. Uh, I think the the lines between the good and the bad and the ugly they're drawn exceedingly clearly in this saga. Yes. And the main villain is Thorbjorn Thjodriksen, who's presented to us as the worst of the worst. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He he's the guy who takes advantage of all of his thingmen. He throws his weight around unjustly. He's the textbook definition of Oyafnadarmadar. And yes. he admittedly kills without cause sometimes and never pays compensation. Oh, and uh, John, he has the habit of taking in the district's finest young women as servants or concubines or hostages to help him control the flow of power around him, whatever he takes them in for. And he surrounds himself with sycophantic fools like Vak. Mm-hmm. He kills Olaf Halvorsson without any good reason and openly mocks Halvorsson for attempting to get compensation. And if that isn't bad enough, he carves out Olaf's teeth and then smashes Halvorsson in the face with them when forced by his betters to pay for his crime. 
He's one of the more despicable creatures that we have encountered recently, and he's well-deserving of outlawry. So shall we move on to Thingman now, John? Well, now hang on just a second. Uh, I acknowledge everything you said about Thorbjorn. He's awful. But you did mention his sidekick. And here's the thing about Vox. Yeah, Vox is awful. He's got a very Vok yeah. has a, a very um uh, a very narfy vibe about him. Yes, he does. He's a really really irritating person. He's the classic <laughs> saga figure like Narfi of a nasty small-minded man whose antics lead to tragedy for better men. That's true. Now, I understand sucking isn't a formal charge. Uh, <laughs> but it is Vok who instigates the first conflicts between Olaf and Thorbjorn over whether true. Olaf is wooing Sigrid, right? uh, one of those women you mentioned who Thorbjorn abducted. Right. It's also Vok who mocks and shrieks at Olaf whenever they come into contact, and then mocks and jeers at Halvorth after Olaf's death. Mm-hmm. Every step of the way, he's a nasty piece of work who's behind a lot of the evil that Thorbjorn does in the saga. All true. I don't necessarily think he's worse than Thorbjorn, but I think there's room for him to share some of the blame for the chaos and bloodshed of Isafirth. Well, here's here's the way I'm thinking of that. Wherever we send Thorbjorn, Vok will be right there directly <laughs> behind Vok him. <laughs> lips with his, pressed with his lips closely. Glued firmly to Thorbjorn's buttocks. That's right, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, so what do you, I mean, we could prolong this. We could talk about Thormoth's Draugr, uh, who, you know. Well, we can't really talk about that because, you know, we, we, what would we do? Would we outlaw the undead? I mean, there, there's precedent for that. Iropiki Saga, uh, <laughs> has, I mean, yeah. Puts the undead on trial and but sends Thorolf, them off. But Thorolf Twistfoot, uh, oh, I see what you mean. I think you meant our outlawry, uh, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. We do have legal precedent uh, for bringing a case against the dead. But we are we really going to argue that Thormod is worse than Thorbjorn and Vok? I mean, it's not. No, because Thormod, he's not really hurting anyone. He just kind of wants to come home and sleep in his bed, it seems. <laughs> That's actually true, maybe, isn't it? Maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe he does do the something first time, bad, but The second time when he's blocking Bron the Strong from bringing home the sheep, he's being at least disruptive. But yeah, still not as That's bad true, as the yeah. others. Uh, but we also have to consider the fact that Thorbjorn is not an only child, Andy. He's got a lot of brothers, and they're not very nice. Many brothers. And those brothers also share in the suckage that is the bad guys <laughs> in the saga. Um, oh, wow. We could, what kind we of father be, was Theodric? I mean, seriously. We could make a case for Yolt the Dueler, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make a case instead for Thorarin Theodrickson, the oldest, last, and cruelest in many ways of the brothers. This is a man who makes a uh, a play at taking a legal case uh, over the killing of his brothers uh, and then pretends to accept the consequences of that case, accepting a deal that really doesn't benefit him much at all because he knows that he sent a squad of 18 assassins led by a sorcerer to murder his brother's <laughs> killers. That's true. This is a man who makes a mockery of the legal system who abuses his authority, uh, who uses magic to get at his enemies, and, I want to point out, who doesn't actually lift a sword in the revenge for his own brothers, but instead sends a bunch of mercenaries to kill for him. Mm. 
while he pretends to play the good and noble chieftain at court. This is true. It's all pretty bad. Yeah, it's not. I mean, the Theodricsons in general, but Thorbjorn and Thorarin in particular, pretty, pretty terrible people. I mean, there is there. I'd say there are two ways we can handle this. One is to uh, send Thorbjorn on into exile, knowing that Vok will go along with him by force. For sure. Uh, the other is to get a party boat and send the Theodricsons <laughs> as a family out I'm of Iceland forever. I mean, given the given that I feel fairly confident we're not going to choose any of them as Thigmen, I don't feel like we're really costing ourselves anything. Poor well, Sturtla. I mean, they are very powerful. Be, I mean, poor Sturtla will be dragged along, and that's that's unfortunate because he didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, but uh, I th- these are the consequences say- of having four awful brothers. I hear you, um, but we already split notable witticisms between two people. True. I'm not going to sit here yeah. and allow us to do a five-way split on Outlawry. On everything. I mean, we can't. We just That's can't valid. do it. We need. We need to. We need to make a decision here, and yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah, it's pretty is clear. to outlaw Thorbjorn, of course, and Vok. Of course, uh, I think we outlaw Thorbjorn, knowing that Vok is going with him. We don't even have to split the decision. We right. just outlaw Thorbjorn, and we know that. To his humiliation, Vok will be forced to go along uh, yeah. because he doesn't really have any way of extricating himself from Thorbjorn. Exactly. Great. Exactly. So Thorbjorn, get on that duck boat. See ya. <laughs> <and> sail away. <laughs> Thing man. All right. Uh, so this is the moment when each of us gets to choose a figure from the sagas. Often a uh, a difficult decision, but in this saga where the good guys and the bad guys are so clearly delineated, all we have to do is pick yeah. somebody in a white hat. Uh, and Andy, yeah. uh, since I went first with uh, Lockstyle Saga, uh, this is your mm-hmm. time to shine. You get to pick first. So who are you yeah. taking into your hall? Yeah, I mean, normally I'd be really, really excited about that. I'd feel <laughs> so lucky about that. Um. But I'm not sure that going first in this saga is the boon that one might hope mm-hmm. for. I, in, in some ways, it's similar to our Thingman section for Lock Style of Saga in that we have a lot of candidates to choose from. And we're both likely to leave this segment pleased with our choice. But it's different in that we were very excited about a lot of the characters in Lock <laughs> Style of Saga. And there really was no way to lose in the Thingman section there. The same can't be said for Havarth Saga. And by that, I mean that there are a lot of characters to choose from, but no one really stands out as the Thingman to choose above all uh-huh. others. Yeah, this, this is unusual for a saga of this length with this kind of singular focus on the protagonist. And yet, I'm not sold on Halvarth as Thingman. Let's, let's look at his bona fides. He's a former Viking who enjoyed some success in his youth. He's raised in an admirable young man in Olaf. Good good parenting. He appears to be a loyal husband. And when he gets his vigor up, the old man can put together a pretty decent revenge. But Havarth is a very old man. And while he does manage to avenge his son, it's only after years of laying around in bed and being goaded by his wife. And to be fair, Thorbjorn slipped while getting ready to heave a massive stone on Havarth as he swam to shore. 
Halvarth's job is a lot easier because Thorbjorn is all but crushed under the weight of that stone. And during the battle at Outley's farm in the closing chapter, Halvarth needs Outley's help to finish off his opponent. I'm sorry, is this a Thingman section or a why I'm not picking this guy section? Well, I think the thing about Thingman sections, John, is you have to review the candidates. Carry on. And that's what I'm doing. At some length. Are you going to be okay? Oh, I I mean, I'm I'm only getting warmed up. Oh, dear God. I mean, this is just the intro. I'll be back in a few minutes. Go on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You go get another drink. (laughs) Uh, I'll still be talking. (laughs) But I'm going to take a sip of mine real quick. But yeah, I'm 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 not eager to choose Sleepy Halvorth as my thingman. So uh, who's left? Olaf, Halvorth's son, really intriguing for his potential. He's a romance hero walking around in an open undershirt, <clears throat> his muscles rippling all over the place, looking for lost sheep and guiding them home. He is Little Bo Peep's wet dream. Stop! My That's ears what are I like to Think of him as, and he's a genuine Draugr wrestler. Olaf, he's a sweet deal and a good option. I like him. And then there's Atli. He starts out pretty rough, admittedly, but Stainthor helps him see the air of his ways, and with that light of generosity lit under his ass, Atli develops into a kind host, a remarkable tactician, and a deadly hand-to-hand combatant. He's also a fierce judge who doesn't shy away from cropping the guilty party and covering them in tar. It's a remarkable turnaround, and Atli could certainly claim a seat in my hall. But I'm not choosing him. Something about the way he cuts those ears off without hesitation just rubs me the wrong mm-hmm. way, even if that's the kind of killer instinct one might look for in a thingman. But that is not the culture and character of the hall that I'm building, John. No, I'm looking for good, upstanding men. Men who are known to be powerful, known to be fearless warriors, and known to be great chieftains who can not only wield their influence effectively, but also responsibly and with a generous heart. Let's forget for a moment that Stainthor of Eri is a major player in our saga, where he is introduced as a tall, strong, handsome man who's recognized not only for being thoughtful, but also for being one of the three best fighters in Iceland. Incidentally, the other two listed are Helgi Droplogerson and uh, Vermund uh, Fringe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helgi Droplogerson happens to be one of my thingmen. Here in Halvard's saga, he, he's an idealized portrait of the good Gothi. Stainthor doesn't know Halvarth when he first sees him at the Owl thing, but he offers him a place in his booth because he looks like he needs some help. And when he sees that Halvarth has done nothing but lie around, failing to pursue his claim against Thorbjorn, he encourages him to act and gives him a logical plan to follow. Which he does. And when Halvarth shows up out of the blue asking for a little help, Stainthor goes out of his way, at great expense to himself and his family, to support him. And then he also offers to support Grimm and Thorstein when they're in need. And though it's not his problem, Stainthor gathers over 300 men and rides to the Althing to settle the dispute. John, I ask, is there nothing Stainthor can't do? He's kind, he's generous, he's intelligent, and he's one of the three best fighters in Iceland. We've been keeping a seat warm for him between Helgi Droplogerson and Guest Oldleifsson for quite a while. And we want to welcome Stainthor to Andy's Hall. We're honored to have a man of your character and ability here. 
grab a seat. So, John, you are left with the unfortunate uh, situation of choosing from all those people that I've just uh, exposed. I don't think you have. I'm uh, I'm actually pretty confident in where I sit. Um, Okay. I understand everything you've said. Uh, I believe that there are a few good Thingmen available in the saga. I'm not quite as down on it as you are. Uh, there aren't a ton of them, but there's a solid handful. Uh, I considered a few people you didn't consider. I thought about uh, Hot Grim Osbrinson, who the saga really wants to convince us is the MVP among Halvorth's kinsmen. Yeah. Or Bjargi, whose determination provides the backbone her husband needs to get back on his feet. I, of course I considered Stanthor, whose status is the only decent man in uh, in his class, it makes him stand out like a diamond in a cesspit. Uh, <laughs> That's yes, I I absolutely considered Outley, whose journey from miserly misanthrope to honorable man of consequence is an inspiring story in a saga that gives us so many reasons to distrust powerful men. And of course, mm-hmm. I put Halvorth on the list as well, a retired Viking who endures personal tragedy and the disrespect of chieftains, and finally proves that strength of character is not defined by age. In the end, we could have a lively debate about all five of those candidates, uh, but I eventually came to a decision, and I'm very pleased that my choice was not chosen by you. What decided me was this. Whose story is this, really? I know the saga wanders off a bit here and there, but the story centers on a man who takes on the unnatural role of a father avenging his son. No parent should ever have to bear that burden. And it's rare even in the sagas to see a father put to that extremity. We have seen it before, uh, but I don't know that we've ever seen it accomplished so thoroughly or with such a flair for decisive violence. Halvorth is a man who admittedly is a little slow to act, perhaps, but he proves that an enraged Viking is a force of nature no matter his age. From his showy decision to go unarmed to his son's vengeance so that he can kill Thorbjorn with his own sword to his masterly assault on the farm of Jot of Manaburg, Halberth of Isafjord is a man who I trust to be a wise leader among my thingmen. I also feel confident that his wife, Bjarki, will be coming with him to hmm. give him encouragement when needed and to run things whenever he can't be bothered. Halvorth and Bjargi, welcome to my hall. Oh, well, you can't get it too far, buddy. Nope, I just feel confident there'll be conjugal visits. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with that in mind, uh, one thing I know about Stainthor is uh, he has a a fondness for his sister (laughs) and her husband. That is so true. He, maybe, is, he is a bit of a peeping Tom. So that's something fun. <laughs> so maybe, maybe there'll be a bit of a show at hey. my hall. <laughs> you know? Because we're both getting a little fun. Well, I, I, I think that's really interesting because you, you didn't go over Olaf that that much. And I, I, I thought you were I, leading I honestly towards did choosing not, Olaf. I did not consider Olaf very seriously. For reasons that I'll probably get into in the cons- final judgment. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I almost here. Here's what I almost did, John. I almost asked you if I could have two two thingmen uh, for the price of one. What? And those those were going to be Thorstein and and Grim Thorbjarnson. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> Just the two, two kids. of them onto their shoulders um, with an overcoat. 
No, 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 no. I what I what I want to do. <laughs> I, I think they show a lot of potential. So what I wanted to do is bring them in uh-huh. and have my have my thingmen kind of raise them up. Right. To you want to put them on your like your, your AAA team. Yeah, yeah they're my farm yeah. team. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's know. not happening. Um, but uh, but you know I can't I can't pass up Stain Thor. You and I talked about this a little bit off mic. Uh, Stain Thor is is very clearly the guy in this that's saga. not entirely now, true we he, he had a does, conversation about three people who we all thought were solid candidates stain thor right, right, right. and halverth don't don't go saying things yeah. now that you're going to try to throw back in my face when it comes to the quarter to, court i was just about to undercut uh, not undercut i was about to reveal what we what we said about stain thor that that limits uh-huh. him as a candidate but now i'm not going to say that's it fine. so you know, listeners, you'll have to figure it out for yourselves. You All right, that's, go, uh, that's it for things. Then let's move on to final ratings. That's fine. <laughs> on to final ratings. Final, final rating. rating. All right, John. We have, uh, I think we have teased this final rating almost since the first episode mm-hmm. of this of this series on Halvarth of Isafjord. I think it's fair to say that both of us like this saga. The question is just how much. You get to go first with your final ratings. I have a lot to say, so if you could be brief, I would appreciate it. Oh, great. Off you go. I'll I'll get right on that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, there is a lot to go into here, uh, and I don't know what you're going to talk about. So uh, I'm going to try to uh, go kind of medium length this time. I don't want to rehash a bunch of things we've already said. Uh, As you said, we've been... We've been tipping our hand all along that we both kind of enjoyed this saga more than we expected to. Uh, it's a strange saga, and it almost doesn't, doesn't make sense to judge it by our normal standards. If we ask the questions we would normally ask, this is not a good saga. Uh, Vidar Hrensen's summation of the saga's antics as, quote, smacking of hyperbole, burlesque, and pastiche pretty well sums up the judgment of anyone reading this text and expecting Vatnsdala saga. But my rule is to try to work out what a saga is attempting and then to decide how well it's doing that. By that standard, there's a lot to like here. This is a saga that knows sagas exist and acts accordingly. There's a meta-narrative level to the way it deploys character types and story beats that knows a great deal about what a saga should say and do. Now, Obviously, that means that it constantly risks sliding into cliché and Okay, yes, into pastiche. I think we've established that whatever this saga is, it's not intended as a serious historical narrative. If I were pressed to define it, I'd call it a moral fable with an affectionately mocking attitude towards saga conventions. That makes it, I think, unique among the sagas of Icelanders. It's not the only one to mimic the form, but it's the only one to do it without seeming contemptuous of its target. I'm going to edge way out on a limb here, but I'm willing to say that this is a mock saga that likes sagas. Now, this all makes it sound like this is a saga taking big swings, and it is. But it also knows how to use little details to render its characters' sketches more convincing. Take a small scene. Uh, I want to focus on Halvorth needling his son Olaf about the sheep's leg on their table by making a roundabout reference to Olaf's troubles with Thorbjörn and then smiling quietly as his son stews. In that moment, we learn something important about Halvorth, the way he expects his son to respond to slights against their house's honor. In that smile, we see the iron that's still in the old man's character. 
But we also see Olaf, who's been presented as a cheerful young man, happy to chase sheep around the dales. We see him shatter a leg bone against the table as he betrays his simmering anger at the way he's been treated for the first time. We can also think about Bjargi, her firm hand at running her farm, her resolve in recruiting her nephews to the cause, her no-nonsense approach to Halvorth's dramatics, and her fondness for her husband before their parting. All that combines to build a full portrait of a woman who only gets maybe a few hundred words of attention in the entire saga. I'm not saying this is flawless art. Vak is a caricature of a villain, shrieking and sneering his way through the saga cartoonishly until he drowns himself in a puddle. Some of the narrative's loose ends and false starts are confusing and distracting. Many side characters exist as ciphers. Three of the five nephews who follow Halvorth to war leave no impression at all, while Hutgrim is mostly important because the saga keeps telling us he is. And instead of trusting to characterization to show us Thorbjorn's jealous and bullying nature, the saga resorts to telling us that he's unfair and unjust, over and over and over again. This is a saga that both benefits and suffers from its constant awareness of audience. And when it moves toward reification of the saga as a formulaic construct, it risks becoming flat and obvious. But it remains a pleasure to read. Its skillful observations of what makes sagas tick provides much of the fun of its storytelling. I I wouldn't want this to be someone's first saga because the secret ingredient, I think, in reading this thing is your knowledge of the form. But as a piece of work, it's a treat. And I'm going to give it a 7.5, possibly raising it to an 8 if I believe that this person already knows sagas well enough to enjoy it. 7.5. Wow. Andy, how are you doing? Wow. Um, for the listener out there, um, I enjoyed John's final rating there. Uh, I was not expecting that number <laughs> from him. And so what happened was I raised my hands. Up Andy in the went air wacky wall walker and... on me. <laughs> very, very surprised. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think that we made it any secret while working our way through the four episodes of this series on Halvarder Saga, Eastfjordings, that we were both fond of the story it is telling, and John has just revealed just how fond he is of it. Now, I understand that this saga has a complicated textual history that undercuts some of what we have in this surviving version from the mid-14th century, and I think... I think it's important to revisit some of those criticisms first in 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 my final rating. Now, first and foremost, I agree this saga does contain some historical and geographical inconsistencies that can leave one scratching their head trying to make sense of how it all fits together. But that's only if you know the history, the landscape, and the distances. The poetry though much of it likely comes from an earlier version of the saga, generally fails to impress, despite some interesting nuances and what they seem to suggest about the evolution of the saga from an older version to the version preserved into the present day. And, of course, this saga comes to us from a period generally looked down upon by traditional saga scholars who set the tone for how we approach the sagas and evaluate their quality. Its lateness has traditionally been a mark against it. 
And as one of the younger sagas of the Icelanders, Halvarðr saga is typically disregarded as being too derivative of Golden Age sagas. And we covered some of this in our first episode, but I would like to share a little of what Theodore M. Anderson had to say about this saga in his analysis of it for his book, The Icelandic Family Saga. And in his brief analysis, he says, If one were to select one saga, typical of saga structure and saga technique in general, and not characterized by any particularly striking idiosyncrasies, a kind of saga's saga, it might well be this one. Well, what he's saying there is that this saga is less interesting simply because it's too good at being a saga. It checks all the boxes for saga composition. So, it's both an insult and a compliment. (laughs) Now, John, I also checked the Goodreads reviews of this saga, and I found a similar comment from Ratiocination, who observed, As the sagas go, this one isn't one of unusual merit or significance. Well, fair enough, Ratiocination. Fair enough. Now, despite all the assertions that this saga is too typical of saga literature, I have to say I'm quite pleased overall with what the compiler or author or editor accomplishes all the same. This is a story that is just different enough from the typical saga revenge narrative that we're familiar with to make it both compelling and fun. It is, in all its saga-iness, a very readable and enjoyable and a surprising saga that shows an attention to structuring and detail that other sagas that receive higher praise simply don't accomplish. Let's think about the structure for a moment. We've got a tightly written three-act structure here that is ready to be adapted into a screenplay with some minimal editing. Act 1 covers the slaying of Olaf and the humiliation of Halvarth. Act 2 covers Olaf's reawakening and his thorough revenge on Thorbjorn and his brothers. And then Act 3 is the part where we witness the aftermath of that revenge. The the rise of Atli the Brave. The resolution to the conflict at the Althing. And each of those acts is carefully structured as well. Each building to an exciting and well-earned climax. That's good writing. And I think we should note the quality of the writing scene by scene as well. Something I really admire about this one is the attention to detail, the setting of scenes, the building of dramatic tension. More than any other saga we've read, this one reads like a ready-to-go screenplay. I think you could do this one almost shot for shot, following the saga, and have a pretty damn good movie. The, The scene where Thorbjorn and Vok attack Olaf is a great example of this. Olaf says he won't seek out Thorbjorn and Vak when he's talking to, uh, what's her name? Sigrid. Um, Sigrid, that's right, yes. Uh, But then he goes right down to the shore to help pull their boat in. I love that. Mm -hmm. He says he won't encounter them, but he goes directly to do it. And it is casually mentioned that he picks up the boat hook and keeps it with him. It's a nice detail. It's then noted as they walk along, that Vok and Thorbjorn keep falling behind, going a little bit slower, positioning themselves behind Olaf. And then, when the fight breaks out, Olaf uses that boat hook to defend himself. That's good scene building. 
And just when the outcome of the fight seems uncertain, the narrator shifts to Thordis's farm, and this leads to Scarf's appearance on the scene and the end of Olaf. The whole thing is executed with a deft hand that is aware of how to best build the tension. And this is just one of many examples in this saga. John, you highlighted several others that I think work really well for what's interesting and compelling about the characterization, even if the characters of this saga are somewhat black and white. But what action movie, what good movie uh, following a formula doesn't have somewhat black and white characters that we still enjoy? Die Hard is not too complex, and yet we love it, right? It's got a good villain and a good hero, and we're never confused about who's who in that movie and yet it's a great movie and it's a classic it's an interesting comp interesting comparison there so maybe the complaint that the saga is derivative holds some weight and yet i think the expert manipulation of our expectations especially the drowning of vok the crushing of thorbjorn with the rock and even the transformation of outley they all deserve some praise these are surprising elements to the saga that play with convention this isn't just a saga that rehashes old tropes. As John said, this is a saga that takes the familiar and plays with it in a manner that leaves me satisfied with the overall experience, even though I can see the framework of a very typical saga here. So when I think of how to rate this saga, I have to think about it in terms of not only what the saga is doing and how it does it, but also how much I enjoyed the experience of reading and rereading it. So for me, this one is a solid seven. It's a little better than good, but not quite good enough to be great. It's in the same league as Finboy's saga, the saga of the people of Kjallanes, and the saga of horror than the home dwellers. It is a solid saga, and it's worth reading. It's a good seven. Andy, I have to ask, given that we ended up half a point away from each other, what was with the yeah. wacky Walt Walker response to my 7.5? Um, I didn't expect you who has generally been less than enthusiastic about the post-classical sagas mm -hmm. to give this one a 7.5. And what I was really reacting to was the fact that your score was higher than I mine. See. I knew what my score was. And the fact that you went higher was really surprising I to see. me. I, I, I All right. Uncomfortable with that. 7.5 for me, 7 for Andy means a 14.5 total. Very respectable. Very respectable. Puts it in the, uh, I would imagine, probably in the lower end of the top third of the sagas we've read. I think that I think that's absolutely right. And what that means is that if you are a listener, you should probably pick this yep. one up. Uh, and there yeah. are multiple translations out there, including uh, the one available in the Complete Sagas of Icelanders, uh, the Frederick Heinemann translation. As well mm -hmm. as the translation by Dorothy and Paul Durenberger, uh, which um, that did you say the Durenbergers? I did say the Durenbergers. Because I know I gave you the opportunity one last time. Consider it a gift from me to you. Uh, <laughs> I believe they're they're holding a function uh, um, next weekend. Are, have you been? In, have you received the invitation? Uh, no, I'm afraid I have not. Well, nobody grills <laughs> burgers like Jeffrey Durenberger. Uh, it's a uh, it's Paul. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't i have no and idea because i don't have that book <laughs> oh i know dorothy dorothy's sure, lovely of course uh, anyway all right it's uh it's time to roll down the shutters put out the lights and finally say farewell to halworth saga this this was a good one 
this is kind of what this podcast's for. To find a saga like Halvarth that almost no one reads and see what makes it a little hidden gem. Yeah, and with any, uh, with any luck, we'll be able to keep that good luck going with our next saga. Uh, we've yeah. chosen to cover Svarfdala Saga next. Uh, it's another of the yes. post-classical sagas, like Halvarth Saga. But other than that, they're very different stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am heading down to Tallahassee to see Florida State beat Miami this weekend, oh, but uh, we we will be back very soon with some pretty exciting stuff. Uh, up first, though, is going to be the second installment of our Beowulf Review series, also known as Huata Movie. Yes, a steampunk Highlander Beowulf wasn't the only Beowulf movie to come out in 1999. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> A rather expensive movie based on Michael Crichton's Eaters of the Dead also premiered that year. Yeah, that's right. We are talking about thirteenth, the 13th Warrior, excuse me. Uh, and and while it did significantly better in the box office than Lambert's Beowulf or Lambert's Beowulf. They couldn't do worse. Uh, it, was, it was generally considered a flop and panned by critics. But audiences seem to like the 13th Warrior all the same. So we're going to weigh in with our opinions in Huata Movie. It really doesn't seem like it should be possible that there were two of these in the same year. And yet it is. Uh, Now, calling this one a Beowulf adaptation, I have to say, is playing fast and loose with the word adaptation. But I suppose that's part of what we'll be talking about. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, uh, let us know what you think about the judgments we've made here. Uh, were we too generous to Halvarth and his saga full of octogenarians? Did we forget to mention your favorite bloodshed moment? Uh, how do they tell us about all our failings, Andy? Well, I'd rather they don't get in touch to tell us about well, our failings. You've been asking. <laughs> maybe they could get in touch to tell us about what we got right and, and how much That'd they love us. Face. Yeah, but... <laughs> If you want to uh, reach us through email, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, you can find us on social media from Facebook to Instagram to the funhouse horror that once was Twitter. And best of all, you can reach us on our unofficial official Discord page. I'll include the uh, link to that in the uh, in the show notes. Please do. Uh, come by the Discord where we're talking about Viking travels, medieval music, the confidence of the mediocre chat GPT answer, and the relative merits of poop, Guano, feces, and manure as names for a small island. What? Because we're scholars, damn it. All right. I think that about does it. We'll be back soon with a movie, a saga, and maybe something else. Who knows? Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Now, maybe that was not the best organized plan you could have had. I don't need to hear that from you, John. Just saying.